Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Well, here we are, week three of our one-week message of God graciously provides for His children. It has now come part three, and I promise to finish one way or another today, or we will not leave until it is finished. Exodus chapter 15, 22 through 18 through 27 has been our passage, and God's done quite a bit, much more than I anticipated when I first opened up to those pages. Great expectations. Don't we have great expectation? That's a, Charles Dickens wrote a book that became a classic with that title. Maybe you've read it. Uh, maybe you've seen the movie or the plays, but great expectations. Now, most of us have great expectations of what we would like our life to be. We have expectations of what our children would be. We, we always want our children to do better and be better than we are. We have great expectations. We all have some type of dreams and aspirations for greater things, do we not? The problem is, what do we do when things do not go as perceived or expected? We all have desires. Some of those desires are good and godly, and others are bad and evil. We then have expectations of how those desires may be fulfilled. However, how do you and I respond when expectations do not match reality? That is when conflict comes. That is when doubt and anger and frustration and grumbling and complaining arise. When our desires are not fully met by those we expected to do so. And this is what we're finding in our passage these last few weeks. Is Israel has a legitimate desire, food, water, protection, and leadership. And they have an expectation of what the life is supposed to be like after slavery, yet... They struggle when it's not met, when it doesn't meet to their expectations. And when that happens, it leads to their grumbling and to sin. Now, as we came to our passage these past three weeks, we find things that have not been going so well for the Israelites. They had the euphoria of seeing Egypt and Pharaoh's army finally decimated as they crossed the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea came down, and they see deliverance. They can see the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire at night that leads them. Amazing though, as soon as they get past the Red Sea, dire straits start to come. That which they took for granted all of a sudden becomes very scarce as they suffer from hunger, thirst, and impending war. Amazing though, it's the faithfulness of Yahweh as he graciously provides, even as the Israelites quickly go from an attitude of worship from the Song of Moses to an attitude of grumbling and complaining in just a few short verses. Our passage, as we've been seeing these past few weeks, is full of imagery that points to Christ and identifies several themes that are woven throughout the fabric of Scripture. And that's where I'd like to get this morning. We read of God giving laws and statutes for his children to follow, but yet dire situations that will test the genuineness and depth of their faith turn to expose the bitterness of their hearts. 
But we also see an amazing picture of Yahweh's faithfulness as he graciously provides the relief they need. In three ways we've been looking these past two weeks, God graciously provides. He provides in sustenance, water, and food. He provides protection, and then he provided leadership. Though Israel is faithless, bitter, hard-hearted, filling their time with grumbling and complaining, God still provides all that they need. Instead of judgment, they find redemption. Instead of condemnation, they find salvation. God is a gracious, generous provider. In these passages, Moses writes that the Lord is our healer and the Lord is our banner. Now you might remember three weeks ago our catechism. It correctly pointed out that the law of God requires personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. It went on to state that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. It is on these two principles that all the law hinges. It also then went on to state that what should be obvious to us as Christians or to anyone, what God forbids we should not do and what God commands should always be done. However, you and I know just from personal experience that that is impossible for us to do in our own power. Like the Hebrew children, you and I fail to love God and to love others. Instead of worshiping God and encouraging each other to be strong in our faith, the Hebrew children doubted God. And we are no different than they are. The circumstances may be different, but the results are the same. Sin, rebellion, bitterness. However, we have learned that just as then, God still graciously provides for us today. One of the grand pictures we see in this passage is that of the sin, law, and grace. Several times God gives Moses the commands that the children of Israel are to follow. More times than not, they disobey and sin against God. Yet each time God responds with grace by providing. What a wonderful picture of the gospel for you and I. For it is while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Christ provided salvation, deliverance. You see, like Israel, God has commanded us to follow. He has told us that we are to follow his laws. Yet the book of Romans informs us that we have all sinned. We have all become guilty. There is none that seek after God. In Ephesians 4, or Ephesians, excuse me, it describes us as disobedient and rebellious children. Yet God, mercy, grants us grace in the person of Christ who comes and pays the penalty of our sin and then gives us, earns us, the righteousness of Christ. Now we find this precious gospel in the words found in Romans chapter 4. If you would look at the monitors, please. In verses 7 through 8 and verse 25. Where he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. That's where you and I want to fall. We want to be there. And this promise is found in the gracious provision of God who through Jesus, as we look at there, counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered us, or delivered up for us, excuse me, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, help us to see the wonderful gospel that's even presented in the, in the Old Testament. Help us to see your love, your mercy, and your grace given to sinners who are not deserving. It's not by our own works, but by yours. 
And so, Father, as we come and explore and open the doors to this imagery of the gospel, open up our minds and hearts and challenge us this morning to respond as you would have us to do. We praise the name of Christ. Amen. Now, I'd like to point out two things of interest found in the passage of the last two weeks. The first point, now these are not going to be on the monitor for you, but if you're taking notes, you may want to write them down. The first point is the wonderful word pictures of the gospel found in these passages. The wonderful word pictures found of the gospel. Through these testings and God's gracious provision found in our passages, passages, we see the wonderful pictures of Christ and the gospel. Now, I don't want to say that Christ is in every passage, but what we have to see is that we can find his work as God's redemption story is being played out. The first one we're going to see is Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Like the Israelites, we hunger. But our hunger is misguided and misdirected by our passions and desires, just as they were. One article several weeks ago reflected on everyone's hunger for happiness and how they search high and low for purpose and meaning of life. They want to be happy. Sadly, our lives reflect the songs of looking for love in all the wrong places, and I can get no satisfaction. James writes in his letter that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The problem is, is our desire, just as theirs, is misguided and misappointed. Now we see this in the feeding of the 5,000. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be in John for the most of the part this morning. John chapter 6 and John chapter 4. So I'm going to give you a moment to turn there. And what we're going to see in this feeding of the 5,000, the crowds that followed Jesus into the wilderness. Now they, like the Hebrew children, brought little to no provision with them into the wilderness to hear the words of Jesus. And after some time, they become hungry. Jesus, as you know, graciously and miraculously provides food for them with two loaves and, uh, or was it, five loaves and two fishes. And they are so thankful and impressed that they then desire to make Jesus their king by force if necessary. Jesus, understanding that their desire is selfish, leaves under the cover of darkness to the other side of the lake. However, as the morning comes, they see him missing, they follow him over. And this is where we find ourselves in the chapter 6. Read with me verse 25 silently as I read out loud. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus recognized and points out that they're desiring the wrong things. They're looking to fill their belly, to, to get rid of the, the stomach pains, the, the hurt. So they're wanting more of that. Let's continue at verse 30 of that chapter. So then they say, then what sign then, Jesus, do you do that we may see and believe you? He had challenged them. What work do you perform as if he needs to do something else other than feeding them? Look at verse 31. The people go on to say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Remember, that's where the manna came from in our passage. In verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread 
from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Like many of us, they desire this bread. But again, they misunderstand what he is saying. They think he is speaking of literal bread. In verse 35, Jesus goes on to declare, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And to make the point even clearer, he declares in verse 40 of that chapter, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now Jesus here is not speaking about literal bread that you eat with a meal, but he's speaking of something much greater than that. Confused, the people are not sure what Jesus is saying. And like their forefathers, they begin to grumble against the Son of God, saying in verse 42, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he know, or how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? You see, their desire is fleshly, and they just want their bellies full. They're afraid of dying from starvation, yet Jesus is offering to fulfill a greater need, a greater desire, a greater hunger. He's offering eternal life. Follow with me in John chapter 6, again, in verse 47, as Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. So we see there was a bread from heaven that came and filled the bellies, but yet you perished. It would not even last a day. But just as he just says, I am the bread of life who comes and I am eternal. And if you eat of me, you shall live for eternity. In verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, Jesus is greater than manna that sustained Israel for 40 years. To take of Jesus is to hunger no more. In verse 58, Jesus doubles down by saying, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And it's sad to note it is at this time that many left Jesus for his saying was too hard. Even his disciples struggled with the words of Jesus. You see, they're looking for something tangible. They're looking for something earthly. Fulfill my desires today. But Jesus is saying there's something much greater. I am the bread of life. And he uses the example of Exodus as they do too. Give us a sign. Show us. Meet our physical needs. And God says, I have something much greater for you. I have a bread that leads to eternal life. So not only is Jesus the living bread, the, the manna from heaven, but number two, Jesus is also the living water from the rock. We looked at this passage earlier in our message series, but we're going to look one more time at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You don't have to turn there, for it's on the monitor. Here, Paul points back to the events of our passage to refer to Jesus. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. 
and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was, help me out, Christ. Now, Paul is not taking liberties here with the text, but building on the teaching of Christ, especially that's found in the discussion that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman. You're at John chapter 6. Turn back a page or two to John chapter 4. You might recall this encounter with Jesus and the woman. Disciples gone into town to get uh, food, and Jesus sat alone by the well where the people come to water. There he meets a woman in desperate need of salvation who is surprised that Jesus would ask her for a drink of water. In those days, the Jews thought very little of their Samaritan neighbors and really their Samaritan cousins, half-brothers and half-sisters, but they thought very little of them. But look at verse 10 of John chapter 4. As Jesus is having this conversation, Jesus answered it. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, she's answered, why would you ask a drink from me? You would, ask, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be what? Thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, this piques her curiosity and it speaks directly to a desire she has. Remember, this is a woman that's had five to seven husbands. The man I can't remember the number and the man that she was living with at the point was not her husband. This is a broken woman, a sinful woman. We see this in John chapter 4. Look at verse 15. For the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Again, I think she's thinking physical, but I think she's getting a little bit of what's going on here. Because unlike the Jews who only wanted to fill her stomach, she's desiring something much greater. You see, Jesus is offering spiritual, not physical and she understands this and she desires this. You see this by her response to this remarkable offer in verse 25. For she then points to the Messiah. She says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. So she's desiring now something even greater. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now in verse 28, as we continue, we read that, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now what we see here, God is using this broken woman to open up the doors of the gospel to the living well. In verse 39, we read, as we continue in John chapter 4, with me please. The many Samaritans came, or many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. That, that in itself is just a, a wonder that he would do so. 
And many more believed because of his word. There were more people that were drinking from the water as it comes from the rock who is Christ. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, Jesus is greater than the rock that sustained the Israelites. To drink of the words of Jesus is to thirst no more. As the disciple says, who would we go? Only you have the wonderful words of life. Jesus himself had promised, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, Jesus is the greater walk who brings forth water that quenches the thirst. Number three, another great picture, the imagery that we see in our passage, was Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Since creation, God has ordained the Sabbath as a day of rest and worship. We find it first mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. Then in chapter 16, verse 23 of Genesis, or I'm sorry, in Exodus, and then God will write it down in stone when we come to Exodus chapter 20. The Sabbath points to the final rest that you and I have in Yahweh who will deliver us from the presence of sin and death. We have been delivered from the penalty and and the power of sin, but one day he will deliver us from the presence of sin. Yet in the New Testament, we find the warning that those who disobey God will not enter that final rest. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, Jesus declared that the Son of the Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The writer of Hebrews teaches us that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is one more rest than just the Saturday or the day that we take or the Sunday that you and I may take for a day of rest. There is something greater He goes on to write in Hebrews that whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. In other words, we no longer work trying to attain our salvation. For he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as those that did in our passage who got up and tried to get uh, manna on the Sabbath day. That means there's no longer do we have to work for our salvation, but embrace and trust in the works of Christ on our behalf. See, Jesus is the greater Sabbath, but let me also ask this, for it's by God's gracious gracious provision of a Savior that you and I can now rest in the mercy of God. But let me answer the question, what does it mean to strive to enter that rest? That seems work-oriented to me. It seems like I need to be busy, that I need to labor. However, that's not what the word means there. That's not what the phrase is talking about. It doesn't mean to work for our salvation, but to diligently seek it, to eagerly anticipate it, and move towards it. So you and I, as we experience our Sabbath today, we see that that's more than just a suggestion. It's a command of God that he has called us to do a time of public and private worship to to remember him and to focus on him. That's to remind us that one day we will cease from enduring suffering and the heartaches of life. The great expectation of that we will be with him and he will be our God will come to being. Amen? As every tear is wiped away and we are with him forever. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and one of the elders in the first century church of Jerusalem writes, 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. We saw this in our Sunday school. With whom there's no variation or shadow due to this change. For of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind of the first fruits of his, create, of his creatures. You and I rest knowing that God will give us. Hence why he could tell us in Matthew 6, do not worry, do not be anxious. Why? For every perfect gift comes from God. And you and I are to rest in that. Rest in our eternal. Not only in the eternal, but even here in the here and now. So point number one is that God graciously provides a Savior to meet our greatest need of a deliverer and redeemer. And I pray today that your greatest desire is to embrace the cross of Jesus and see him as the great treasure and desire him far more than anything else that this world offers. For he gives us that great rest. He gives us that great hunger or that, that, that food, that, that, that bread that fulfills our hunger and the water of our thirst. The Apostle John warns in his first letter, and mark this, you know this passage of Scripture very well, that do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does not the will of God, or whoever does the will of God, abides forever. We would find that the Israelites would perish, as we read in our scripture reading earlier. That first generation that was delivered, that first generation who saw themselves uh, uh, unbound from from Pharaoh's hand, who saw the Egyptians demolished, who saw all the plagues and saw all the manna and the, and the quail and the ways that God worked, never saw the promised land. Their sin, their rebellion was so much even after deliverance. But we need to recognize that there is wonderful pictures of the gospel. The second point is the role of testing in the life of believer today. So now that we see the imageries of God in the bread and the manna and then also in the rock and also in the Sabbath, but you also see in here that testing has taken a place. Again, as I pointed out earlier, testing takes the front stage here in their passage. Not only are they going to face hunger and thirst, but also an attack by their distant cousins as well as Moses being tested in his leadership skills. As you and I learned in our studies of the letter of James and 1 Peter, testing is part and parcel of the life of a child of God. We had saw Dr. John MacArthur said to sub, that testing is to subject one to difficulty in order to provide the quality or, or prove the quality of someone or something. Yahweh here is desiring to test the Israelites in the wilderness to prepare them for the promised land. So testings do two things. Testings do two things. One is they prove the genuineness and depth of our faith. Their want, the Israelites' want, their lack of water and food, leads them to complain and grumble against God and Moses. These three trials that they, they face expose the bitterness of their heart and shows that they doubt the goodness, love, and promises of God. Moses writes that the Hebrew children question, is the Lord among us or not? So testing will test that genuineness and depth of your heart or faith. The second thing that it does, as we saw these past few weeks, just as a matter of review, that it proves the genuineness and depth 
of God's character and promises. One theologian remarks that on the journey from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, the Israelites repeatedly reveal their lack of faith, yet God continues to show himself faithful by providing for them. In Exodus 16, 12, we saw that God declares that he will provide so that they shall know that I am the Lord your God. But here's the problem. Too many of us have been like Israel. Could you imagine how they were in those days? Here they are, they're being delivered from slavery. For over 400 years, they have been under the whip and the authority of the Egyptians to the point that they despaired of life hoping that each birth would birth a a female child so they would not have to kill their sons. You and I could not imagine that in this life today. But here they're finally delivered, only once again to face fear as the armies of Egypt are coming against them and the Red Sea in front of them. They're trapped, nowhere to go. But then God miraculously gives them a path through. Then to see Egypt and Pharaoh destroyed. They had many expectations of what life would be. Now, let us go to the promised land, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have sung its stories. We have retold them to our children for generations, for hundreds of years. They had great expectations of what freedom would be like, taste like, and feel like. Yet as in the wilderness, freedom all of a sudden a long journey by foot tasting the dust in their mouth the heat of the sun of the sun parched throats and empty bellies as feeding two plus million people and all their cattle and livestock and then recognizing that it's not just the Egyptians that want to see them dead but also their own relatives And all of a sudden, God doesn't take them straight to the promised land, but he wants to take them a different route. You can imagine with each step, they're wondering, is this what freedom is like? You hear it in their things. Why did you take us away? At least in Egypt, even under slavery, we at least had meat in the pots. We at least had water. We knew what to expect, but here we are, and freedom doesn't taste and feel like we expected it to do. Desire, expectation, conflict, sin. See, here's the problem. For you and I face the same problem as they do. Too many times we have represented the Christian life as a bed of roses. We expect that if we accept Jesus, all of our problems will be solved. We think of Christian life as like a country western song played backwards. Our one true love comes back. Our truck gets fixed. Our dog comes back home. We find our boots and the beer is always flowing. Now you might laugh at that. I feel here there's a few of you. But take a look at how many Christian films make the same point. And I'm not going to name them for you. They all present some type of major problems. It's relationship, financial, emotion that are miraculously solved when they say a prayer and accept Jesus. Or go to a Christian concert by the Newsboys. Or wait, that's not the Newsboys. Is it the Newsboys? Yeah. Unfortunately, that's how you and I have presented the gospel. 
Accept Jesus and your marriage will be healed. Accept Jesus and he'll give you everything you need. Accept Jesus and your family will be okay. Accept Jesus and your career will take off. One biblical thinker writes, sometimes we have an unrealistic expectation of what our lives will look like after accepting Christ in our lives. We think seasoned Christians have it all together. Always feel close to God and they never doubt. But it doesn't take long for those illusions to be shattered. We soon realize that following Christ doesn't look exactly like we expected. You and I forget, neglect, or ignore the cautions that Jesus gave about following him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He goes on to say that any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He goes on to say if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out, the world hates you. We all want to be loved. My expectation, hey, I'm going to be good. I'm going to love God, love my neighbors. That's going to mean everyone is going to love me. Tell that to the martyrs. As the flames started licking up their legs. They will put you out of the synagogues, Jesus warned. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks it is offering service to God. The error of the prosperity gospel is to warp the message of the gospel. It makes the focus of the gospel our earthly happiness rather than the spiritual joy found in the person of Christ. The prosperity gospel replaces the treasures of Christ with the treasures of our heart. And really, that's what's going on with Israel. The promised land was much greater than the one who made the promise. Like Israel, we can found, and listen to this, like Israel, we confuse our new founded liberty and deliverance in Christ to be problem-free, a bed of roses. But yet, you're here today wondering why my life is such a mess. Why am I struggling? Why am I falling to temptation? Why am I not advancing in my job? Why is my marriage still struggling? I thought the Christian life is everything wonderful. Why isn't every day like Friday? It's not just the prosperity gospel, but I hear the same message in friends and those I love and churches around the world especially in America. The Christian life is about getting it now. I want heaven on earth. But God hasn't promised you that. Maybe you're struggling today with God because of testings in your life. Maybe you are here wondering if God loves you and whether he is even aware of your pain and circumstance. Maybe you too wonder, is God even here? Brother and sister in Christ, let me assure you, that he does love you. And he is aware of your pain and circumstances. You see, the sin of the Israelites is that of unbelief. We see that in Exodus 17, 7, when the children of God question, is the Lord among us or not? That's why Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. 
that these things took place as example for us. Why? Why are they an example? That we might not desire evil as they did. Brothers and sisters, do not doubt the goodness, the love, and promises of God found in his word. Let me ask you, what great expectation are you struggling with because it's not met? In what way are you not satisfied with the promises of God? Could I supply that this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit that's found in the Word of God? Testing is part and parcel of the Christian life. Do not be dismayed that once you accepted Christ, that life is not smooth and wonderful. Testing is part and parcel. Testing is meant to strengthen our character, to deepen our faith and draw us nearer to God. However, in the reading of this passage, we discover that Israel did not fare well. One theologian remarks that while God provides manna, quail, and water, the grumbling of Israel introduces a dark theme into the, God, or into the story of whether or not they will respond properly to the God who's rescued them. And let me share with you today, that same testing is coming on. God has provided you eternal water, eternal bread, and eternal rest. He has delivered you from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and promised you that one day he will take you from the presence of sin. That is our hope and our joy. But yet God is still testing, strengthening you, preparing that you may be conformed to the image of God. His promise, Romans 8, 28, that God will do these things. But in the meantime, he tells us that you and I must be ready for that testing. And so you and I must prepare ourselves to properly respond to that type of testing that we may be strengthened and drawn to him rather than destroy our character and draw away from God. And so with it, I want to give you three things here. They're not on the screen, but you can just mark them down if you're taking notes. You and I need to respond properly to the testing in the Christian life. Not grumble and complain. We're not to run from God. We're not to doubt God. We're not to blame God for our circumstances, but we're to do these three things. There's more than these three, but I just want to mark three. Number one, God has called you to endure testing that you may grow stronger. James chapter 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's his promise of perseverance, or perseverance, that God will preserve us, is that we need to stand steadfast, trusting in God's promises, not doubting if the Lord is among us, but praising God for he is. Even in those moments when you and I cannot see him, or hear him, or feel him. Number two, God has called us to endure this testing with joy. All of these events are ordained by God. Just as God tests us today, he tested the Israelites. After delivering them from their captors, God tested their faith immediately. It's easy to trust God and worship him when things are going well, but much more difficult when things are tough. You can attest to that. James encourages his, belief, or his readers to count it all joy. You know this verse. My brothers, when you meet various dry of various kinds, for you know that your testing produces steadfastness again. And when it's full effect, you are perfect and complete. 
So you and I, instead of, of anger and doubting, we respond with joy. And I know this sounds strange and counterintuitive, but Father, thank you that this struggle is going on. Give me the strength to face it. May I see you even in the midst of this storm. Philippians chapter 2, it's on the monitor here. Verses 14 and 16 in this passage, the Apostle Paul shares the expected attitude of the child of God. He says, do all things with what? Without grumbling or dispute. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That we may be blameless and shine as lights. When you and I turn back and read of that first generation, they were anything but blameless and anything but shining lights of who God was. Let that not be said of this generation here at OVBC. Let it be said that you and I were faithful, that you and I were joyful for those times. Number three, God has called us to comfort others in their trial. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians. I am almost finished here. I thank you for your patience. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to give you one last reason. That's because God has called us to comfort others in their trials. I believe what one pastor says that God does not waste a hurt. Your trial, your struggle, which may be ongoing for the rest of your life. Let me say that. Many times we think, well, I can pray away this testing. I can pray away this issue. But sometimes it may be like Paul where he says, no, my grace is sufficient. You may struggle with this, fight this your whole life. I know that's anything but encouraging at this point in your life but I pray that you would approach it with joy, recognizing that God feels and trusts that you're worth it and that he loves you and that he'll be with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Find the comfort he has given you. Even in your struggle there is comfort. So that, he, so that we may be able, and here underline this, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with we ourselves are comforted. So he comforts you so that you can comfort others. If we're afflicted in verse 6, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. He says our hope is unshaken. So you and I need to respond to testing by recognizing that we're to endure with steadfastness, with joy, in order that we may comfort those who face the same type of thing. I'd like to give you just some words of encouragement. You may ask, well, what does God want me to think or understand about this passage, about this message? Well, I believe God wants us to trust in his goodness, love, and his promises during grim times. He does not want us to be like the old Israelites. His testings are to strengthen our character and deepen our faith, not to hate us, not to punish us, not to pour his wrath on us. Second question is, what does God want you to believe? And here's something, I think God wants you to do something today. There may be a, a worldview or a thought process that you need to change as your expect, expect, on your expectations of what 
this life is to be. So what does God want you to believe? That in Christ, God has provided all that you and I need for our salvation, for godliness and holiness. He wants us to believe in his gracious provisions, trusting that he is a good father who loves his children and will not forsake us. That's the promise of Matthew chapter 6. And maybe you're doubting God's goodness, but please do not. What does God want me to desire? I believe there are some things that you and I need to struggle with and recognize that there are some desires in our life that God is not meeting, and it's by grace we should say, thank God. I was coming the morning uh, to breakfast before I came here, and I said, Lord, continue to restrain the sin in my life. For Father, I don't know how far sin would take me if I were to give in. So restrain it in me as I was confessing sin, knowing that even what I am today could be so much worse if God did not restrain these desires that still struggle and I fight with in my life. So what does God want you to desire? To desire? Instead of grumbling and complaining on what we do not have, He wants us to desire those things that are eternal. We are to desire His words, commands, as their delight and a path to true joy and happiness. You may be unhappy because you're desirous of the wrong things. And because of it, it's conceiving sin in your heart. That sin will lead to death. So maybe there's a desire you need to battle. You need to ask, Lord, is this a good, godly desire? Or even if it is, am my expectations for it good and godly? What does God want you to do? I'll share with you. He wants you to examine yourselves to see that whether or not you're still in the faith. As we saw in Psalms, as we saw in our passage, there were many of the Israelites who were not of the faith. In Hebrews chapter 3, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. A whole generation of Israelites fell. Be not that so today. Be not that. With every head bowed and every head closed, I'm going to ask you to take a moment to pause, to consider to pray and respond to the Holy Spirit. What does God want me to think or understand? What does God want me to believe? What does God want me to desire? What does God want me to do? I pray today that you respond to what the Spirit has. And would you follow so, recognizing that He is the Lord of the Sabbath, the great rest. He is the living water, the living water that gives water of eternal life. And the bread from, he- from heaven that fulfills and satisfies our hunger. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love. Father, show us the ways in our hearts and our minds that we must change. What desires? Let us examine ourselves, Father. Forgive us of those times that we're grumbling and complaining. Lord, that we envy, that we covet. That we desire our bellies to be full, but yet we ignore or reject your precious word that are the words of life. Let us not be like those ancient Israelites. Let us love you and look forward to your promises. Pray that you would challenge us so this morning. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. 
If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.